tonight. It's called Worship Revealed. Worship is something that, if you've been around any kind of a church at any point in your life, it's something that you think about, and if you've grown up in the church, it's something you care about. The way we use the word is, man, I didn't like the worship at that church. Uh, a lot of times when you have like brand new freshmen coming into a, a campus uh, and they, they're trying out different ministries, they'll use the language of, uh, man, the worship at this place is awesome, or at this place it's not so great, or it's weird at this place. So usually when we talk about worship, we think about this. And this is part of that. Or sometimes we talk about worship and maybe at church this past Sunday morning you felt like you didn't worship. Or you felt like you did worship. And so we have an emotional connection to it. Like worship is that feeling of like my emotions being fully engaged at a church service or something. Or maybe you don't even know, you've never thought about worship, you don't know what it's about. But uh, tonight is about, and this passage is about, kind of pulling back the curtains and saying, there's more than meets the eye to worship. It's more than this. It's more than the emotional connection to God. It's more than singing. And so, the things we're going to talk about from the passage are in the bulletin. True worship, like Revelation 5 worship. True worship embraces our inability. True worship centers you. And true worship sings to God. So why don't you stand up and we'll read this passage together. I believe this is the Word of God. This is the Apostle John picking up where he left off last week. Again, we're in the throne room of heaven, the Oval Office of Reality. It's not far away. It's right here. John says this. This is what happened next. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, God the Father, a scroll. And it was written within and on the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming or asking with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders that we talked about last week, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And this lamb, he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, or you. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And they were saying or singing with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea with all that is in them, singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, which means yes. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Why don't we pray? Jesus, our, our quick and our simple prayer tonight is, would you let us see what John saw, what these elders saw, what every living creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea sees in you. Because when they simply saw you, they worshipped you like this. So Jesus, please come and rearrange all of our thoughts and ideas about you and our thoughts and ideas about worship so that we could sing to you this way and mean it. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, why don't you take a seat? Thanks. I think that we just heard asked one of the most important questions that has ever been asked. Did you pick up on it at all? I didn't pick up on it the first couple of times I read this, and then it occurred to me. The question, the most important question that I think has ever been asked was the question that the angel asked. Verse 2, right off the bat, John says there was an angel, and in this bellowing, booming voice, this angel was asking this question. And he said, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And it's an ominous enough sounding question, right? This, this angelic being bellowing this question out. Who is worthy? Simple question. Who is worthy? It's ominous enough. It's mysterious enough if it was just left on his own. But when we read on from there, the next few verses after that, it's like the tension only builds. The climax only builds. The mystery only increases. Because in verse 3, John says right after that, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, which is a way of saying anywhere, <laughs> no one anywhere, nothing anywhere was able to open the scroll or look into it. And John says, and so I began to weep loudly, kind of ugly cry weeping, heaving kind of weeping, can't catch my breath kind of weeping, on the verge of hyperventilating kind of weeping. I wept loudly because no one was found anywhere, no spiritual sage, no guru, no moral teacher, no priest, no person, no king, no psychologist was found who was worthy and able to open the scroll. So doesn't that make you kind of want to know what's in the scroll? 
don't you want to kind of be like, do we, do we get to find out or is this like a mystery that's hidden for the ages? And so the question comes up after the first question, who is worthy to open the scroll? Well, maybe we should ask the question first, what's in the scroll? What is this scroll? And maybe getting an answer to that question will help us with who is worthy to open it. So if you zoom out for a second and you just look at the first five verses, here's some clues, some context clues that will piece together and answer the question, what in the world is in this really important scroll? Well, the first thing is this. Uh, God the Father himself is the one holding it, so it's got to be pretty important, right? Like the God of all the universe, the infinite eternal God, all-powerful God, in his right hand, we talked about this last week, the right hand is the powerful hand, it's the important hand. In his right hand, he's clinging tightly to this scroll, and he's seated on the the throne that we were talking about last week. First clue. Second clue is this. The scroll is filled with writing on the front and the back. Right? I mean, John's pretty sparse with details, but these are the details he shares with us, so they've got to be important. It's filled with writing on the front and the back. And its contents are under heavy guard. Okay? This thing has seven seals on it. Seals weren't just kind of like wax stamps of the king letting you know this is my paper. But seal is also, in a sense, it's a lock. It's, it's sealed tightly like the Oscar envelopes were sealed until they weren't. And it all messed everything up. But it's a super important document. It's sealed. And the number seven, uh, we've been talking about this too, the number seven in the Bible is the number of fullness. It's symbolic. Seven means absolutely or totally. So what does it mean that this scroll filled with writing on the front and the back and the hand of God has seven seals on it? It means it's totally on lockdown, totally uh, inaccessible, totally under guard. These seven seals. The third clue is this. There was this cosmic search for someone who could get into this thing. And it's not just like which locksmith has the tools to get into this baby, but it's who is worthy, not who's able, but who is worthy to open it and who's worthy to read it, to look at it. And nobody was found. And then in verse 5, this is such a big problem for John. That the same John who has already seen all the crazy, amazing, unbelievable things that he's seen starts weeping. Now, remember where he is. He's in the oval office of all reality. He's in the command center of history. Not where history happens, where history is made. John is in the midst of God's presence. He's looking at all of this stuff. And he is bawling in despair. Because no one was found, and I don't know how long this took place, whether it's like a zip through history like that or if there's a really drawn out process, but he is undone that nobody has found worthy to open it. And then the last clue is this. One of those 24 elders, I don't know which one, one of them, maybe the guy who's closest to John, taps him on the shoulder says, John, John, stop crying. Behold, which means look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the seed of, or the root of David, has conquered. So that, important clue, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So, quick summary, let's review. What are these five or six clues and how do they come together and tell us what's in the scroll? What is important enough that God himself is the one holding it tightly in his hand? What is important enough that it's thoroughly and absolutely sealed? What is something that only Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is able and worthy to open? 
And down in verse 9, what is it that connects somehow to him being slain and his blood ransoming a people for his God? You connect all those things together, and what is this? What's in the scroll? What's behind these seven seals? You put all that together and you ask, it eliminates everything else. There's only one thing this could be. This scroll is symbolic. It's representative of God's rescue plan for His people and His world. It's the blueprints of recreation. You'll notice throughout this hymn, there's two things that these people are worshiping God for. His creation and His recreation, which we sometimes call redemption or salvation or grace. Creation and recreation. That's what they're worshiping Him about. And that's what this scroll is. Let me ask you this. Who carries around documents? Even today, even in today's culture when everything's digital, who still carries around paper scrolls and documents wherever they go and keeps them tightly clutched under their arm? Sometimes they're guarded, sometimes they're not. Who does that? Architects do that. Architects uh, carry around their blueprints for whatever they're designing, whatever dreams they have, dreams that they're bringing to reality. They have the blueprints written up and under their arm in a similar way. They have the scroll rolled up. Coaches do. Football coaches, soccer coaches, basketball coaches, whatever. They have the game plan rolled up or on their little clipboard. NFL, they have it. They guard it. They have covers to go over it so no one can see it from the camera. So coaches have game plans. Architects have blueprints. Who else carries around papers like this even to this day? Generals do. Battle plans. And they're all, in a sense, under guard. They're all important. They're all closely clutched. And the original audience, when you hear the word scroll and you're a first century Jew or a first century Christian, there's only one place you you ever encountered scrolls. And it was at the synagogue on Saturdays for the Jews or on Sundays for the Christians when you went to worship God. They would pull out the scroll, unravel it, and you would read a section of scripture. There's only one thing that this would have meant. And the scriptures are God's plan, his rescue plan for the world. It is his blueprint for recreating everything that's gone bad. It's his battle plan for conquering things like evil, things like death, things like sadness, things like pain, things like alienation from him, things like guilt, things like regret, things like shame. That's what this scroll was. That's what God the Father was clutching in his hand. It's his game plan. How will I make my enemies my sons? How will I make my rebels my daughters? How will I make dead people resurrected people? How will I turn guilty people into innocent, clean, good, pure people? How will I turn bad people into mature, wise, loving, thoughtful, faithful people? How will I turn aimless, directionless people into a kingdom of priests unto their God? 
Friends, I think that is what this scroll is when you connect all the dots and you say, what is it? What is it that John is so distraught that nobody was found who was worthy of opening that? Do you see how big of a problem it is if God's blueprint for all of recreation, if his game plan for making guilty people become righteous people, if his battle plan for conquering evil, do you, do you get the dimensions of the problem? Do you understand why John was distraught? when no one was found worthy of opening and executing that game plan. Right? Now it makes sense. John John wasn't like being emotional. That was the exactly fitting response. If you find out that there's nobody who can fix the mess that we're in and the mess that we've made. Right? So John is weeping. This question isn't just... This question of who is worthy isn't just the most important question because it's at the essence of life and the center of all reality and all that kind of stuff, but this question, who is worthy to open this and and execute this, is super important because uh, I think it's a question that we spend every day of our lives answering one way or another. And you really got to get this. That every day that we have lived, every moment of today that I lived and the decisions I made were in one way or another aimed at answering the question, who is worthy to make me new, to make me alive, to make me good, to make me acceptable, to make me worthy? How does that happen? And all of our answers, our lives, are kind of answering these questions. They will either produce weeping in you. If you're out of place in life, or you're at a place just of not understanding some of these things, that you have concluded there is no one worthy to overturn this problem of death that we have. You've had someone close to you die, or you're afraid or terrified of someone close to you dying, or you're terrified of you dying, and you've concluded there's no one worthy of undoing death, and you're distraught about it. Or there's no one worthy, no one able to undo the stuff I did three years ago, the shame that I cannot wash off of me, the memories that I can't purge out of my mind of the stuff that happened to me. And weeping is your response. Or because every tear duct goes dry at some point, you're just sad. But there's not really an emotional there, any emotion there anymore. That's one response is weeping if you've concluded there is no one worthy to open the seals and to execute this game plan, to build this blueprint of recreation. The other response is worship. God has opened your eyes. There was a time when you were dead. There was a time when you were blind. There was a time when you were His enemy. And He has come to you and He has been gracious to you. And He has loved you where you were and He made you alive. And now your eyes are open and you have glimpses of God the way John saw God. And you have seen Him and it has humbled you and shrunk you back to normal size, right? And you have worshipped in a way kind of like this. There's been those times where you're like, I love Him. I love Him. Not even just because of the stuff He gave me that He helped me with the test or He saved my parents' marriage or I got the job I wanted. But I love Him because He's beautiful. I love Him because He's lovely. I love Him because He's good. I love Him because He's worthy of my love. For some people, the response is weeping. For some of you, if God has met you and saved you, your response is worship. 
For others, the response might be, you think that God wants you to make yourself worthy. And so to some degree, you're exhausted, you're cynical, you're sad, you're tired, you're resentful that God would demand something of you that you cannot provide. Whether you're a Christian or not, no matter if you have any clue where you're with God or not, you'll be able to resonate with what I'm about to run through. It's a, it's a church history, 2,000 years of church history in two minutes. My premise is this. Even if you're a worshiper, even if you've been made alive and you see God as He is, you still try to make yourself worthy every day. I think these things, though they're ancient, are going to sound very fresh. Almost like today fresh. These are the ways people through the years, even Christians, have tried to earn God's concern, earn His interest, earn His love, earn His acceptance. There's a guy in 400 A.D., beginning of the monastic movement, this guy was named Simon Stylides. The last name was a nickname. Style in Greek means pillar. This guy, uh, Simon, he was a monk. And Simon, um, basically, in order to prove his devotion to God, how seriously he took God, how, de- how dedicated he was, uh, tried all these different exercises. For a year and a half, he locked himself in a room. I mean, he's like the David Blaine of the Christian world in the 400s. Locked himself in a room that's like six feet by six feet, and he lived there for a year and a half. As a sign of his devotion to God, I will, I, will, I will give up all earthly possessions. I will live in this room. All I'm going to do is eat and worship and pray here. And he got a following. All these people came and said, look how devoted, look how dedicated this guy. He gets it. Well, eventually the crowds got too much for him, so he retreated back into the desert and kind of lived this weird John the Baptist life. And then he, the urge came back. How do I prove to God that I really do believe, I really do love him? So literally he found a pillar. So where his nickname comes from, he found a pillar, uh, some ruins. It's about probably up to the size of the ceiling. And I kid you not, pull out your phone and Google it right now. He lived on top of this pillar for 37 years. Obviously, he would have either food taken up to him or for different reasons from time to time he'd have to come down. But by and large, lived on top of a tiny little pillar for 37 years. The crowds were so enormous, people flocking him. He had celebrity status. Look how devoted this guy is. This guy really believes. The crowds were so big, they built a wall around the base of the pillar so the crowds couldn't get up to the pillar and risk knocking him down. His mom comes up to the wall one day, the edge of the wall, and she's trying to get close to him to talk to him. And and this is recorded. This is history. Simon says to his own mother the following, If we are both found worthy... I will see you again one day. Meaning I'll see you in heaven. The premise of what he said is, if we are found worthy. Remember that question. Who is worthy to open the seals to make everything right again? To make you acceptable to God? Who is worthy? Simon answered, maybe me. And that was his life, 37 years living on top of a pillar, trying to prove that I'm radical enough, I'm serious enough, I'm faithful enough, that God will accept me. I've proven it. His, his life philosophy was, my faithfulness makes me worthy. My faithfulness makes me worthy. Does that, does that ring true for you? Does it resonate with you? Yes, it does for me. All these feats of faith... To prove to God, I really do care. 
Push on a few hundred years after Simon and you get into the, 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 the crux of the monastic movement. These are when the, the monk movement begins for the first time. And these monastics, you probably are more familiar with this, they would basically deny all of these worldly comforts. Their food was sparse and it was bland, like Nacho Libre style, just beans every day. I had to do the Nacho Libre. Just, you can't think about monks and not talk about Nacho. So their food was sparse and it was bland, like no entertainment. They would spend hours and hours reading their Bible every day. They would, spend, they would wake up through the night watches to pray throughout the night just to prove how dedicated and how devoted they were. They took themselves away from all these other things. And their life philosophy was, if I'm good enough, devoted enough, and sincere enough, God will accept me. My devotion makes me worthy. Who is worthy to open the seven seals and look at the scroll? They answered the question, my devotion is what's worthy. That's what God cares about. Skip a few hundred years ahead from that. You get into the scholastics. The scholastics were these guys who sat around all day and debated how many angels can fit on the the quill of a pen. And their answer to the question, what makes me worthy or who is worthy to make me right with God again? Their answer to the question was, if I'm knowledgeable enough, if I know enough, if I eliminate enough doubt... If I answer enough questions and figure it all out, that's what makes me worthy. Does this ring true for you? It does for me. If I can just get rid of those lingering questions or doubts, then God will accept me. Push on a few hundred years from that, you get into the penitent movement around the time of the Reformation. And the penitents were the ones who were like buying indulgences from the Pope where you can pay a certain amount of money and buy your way into heaven or buy your grandma who's in purgatory out of there and into heaven. And the penitents were the ones who were saying, they were beating themselves to produce tears. See God, there's tears. I'm sad over my sin. I take it seriously. I'm not like these other people who don't care about their sin. I care about it. They were penitential. They were always repenting, always begging. And their life philosophy was, if I'm sorry enough, if I feel guilty enough, if I mean it more this time enough, if I promise to be a better person enough, then God will accept me. My sorrow, my tears are what makes me worthy and acceptable to God. Does this ring true for you? Because it does for me. And then the last thing, and, we'll talk, and this goes all the way up till today, but the last big stop on the church history tour is the revivalists, the Second Great Awakening. This is in our country now. This is a 150 years ago here where the, where the uh, charismatic and Pentecostal movements came from. But these revivalists, their, their life philosophy was, if I have enough zeal, if I have enough passion, if I have enough feelings towards God, if my heart is warm enough towards Him, if I'm on fire enough for Jesus, if I'm involved enough and go to enough church stuff, then God will accept me and I'll be worthy. So it's my zeal and my passion that makes me worthy before God. It's the level of my sincerity that makes me acceptable or unacceptable to God. Does this ring true for you? 
Do any of these things produce weeping in your life? Even if it's not physical tears, but it's just this angst, this agony inside, this guilt that won't go away. Because you keep feeling, I fall short, I'm not worthy. And you go, we go back to the penitential stuff. We go back to the feats of faith trying to make God think, this time I really do mean it. We go back to the monastic stuff of, man, I'm going to make life really hard so that I get serious about Jesus this time. Do we go back to the theology and say, if I just learn more and know more, then I'll be worthy? Okay, we just did 2,000 years of church history in a couple of minutes. Do you see the theme? Even for Christians, even for the people of God, and those who didn't know God, the theme is this. It's one long series of people trying to become worthy, trying to become acceptable before God, trying to cleanse ourselves. And church history is still happening. We're the church. And tonight will be history in about 30 seconds. We are doing this stuff too, right? The ripples of this floats all the way up to this shore too. And so I come back to the question, who is worthy? What is worthy to open the seals of the scroll and to build this blueprint? Does God want you to do it? No. Who is capable and able of winning this game plan? Does God want you to do it? No. Who is fierce enough, strong enough, powerful enough, diligent enough, steady enough, loyal enough to kill these kind of enemies once and for all so that you can walk free from sin and evil and death? Does God want you to say, well, maybe me. Maybe I can be that general, that conqueror. No. That's why the center focus of the whole book of Revelation is the lion from the tribe of Judah. The lion who conquers. The lamb who offered himself as a sacrifice. A worthy and acceptable offering for your guilt, for your sin, for your death. For me, never meaning it enough to be worthy of, of God. John is drawing your attention to the one who is worthy. And get... Get the, get the numerical value there. The one. Not Jesus and a little bit of you. Ben is not listed in this passage. Neither is Coolio or Deborah or Rico or anybody. Like It's just Jesus. It's not like John pushes the camera over and says, Oh, look, there's Trish coming up too. She's got, she, oh, she's got a little bit of this. She's going to take one of the seven seals off. Jesus will get the others. It's all him. It's only him. He's the only one in focus. As if to say, look to the one God has given to make you worthy. And stop trying to become worthy. Why have we spent so much time talking about this first little thing? I know you're worried how long is this going to go. It's not much longer. Why so much time on this first thing? This first point of true worship embraces our inability. Because if you still think you're worthy, or if you think God wants you to be worthy, you can never worship. You will never be able to worship. Because your attention will be on yourself and how you've been doing lately. It will be on your record and how much guilt you feel or how great this week was because you did everything you were supposed to. You can't even see God 
if you still think you're able or still think you're worthy, you certainly can't worship Him. You certainly can't know Him apart from these things. So friends, if this in any way describes you present or past in a total way where you don't know God at all or in a little way where you're a Christian but you've lost sight of Him, look to Jesus. That's what the elder says. Behold, look at the lion if you want to begin to worship. The other points come right out of here and we've already kind of talked about them. That true worship re-centers you. It pulls you away from all of these other distractions. It centers your attention on what is true and what is worthy of our love. Imagine a bike tire here. If I had a picture of a bike tire... There is one hub, one center point of that bike tire. There's only one possibility of where you can put the hub and the bike still goes and the wheel still turns, right? If you put the hub anywhere else, if you put the center anywhere else in that tire, the bike is not going to go and the wheel is not going to turn, right? There are hubs for wheels and there is a hub for your life. Your life doesn't turn. Your life can't go. You can't be who you were meant to be. You can't fulfill the destiny of what a human being was made to do. You can't know God. You can't live. You can't survive death. If your hub is anywhere else in that wheel of your life, because it just doesn't work, it doesn't turn, you weren't made to do that. The hub has to be at the center. Worship is recentering you to that hub that is already there, which is the living God that we see in Revelation 5. It's not like you have to go find another hub. It calls you back to the hub that's already there. And it says this is the only way your life will work because this is what you were made for. True worship calls us out of all the other false things that we worship. There's a quote from Eugene Peterson I wanted to read and then we'll we'll finish with true worship sings to God. Eugene Peterson talks about the danger of the hub of your life being anywhere else. of of finding your worthiness anywhere else. He says, Worship is a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically. Ec means out, center means center. Eccentric means out of center. He says, We worship so that we live in response to and from this hub, this center, the living God. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks like a bike tire where the hub is off-center. It consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks, and we are at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren song. Without true worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move either in frightened panic or deluded lethargy, as we are in turn alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos. And he says this, People who do not worship are swept into a vast restlessness, epidemic in the world, with no steady direction and no sustaining purpose. People who do not worship live in a vast shopping mall where they go from shop to shop, expending enormous sums of money and making endless trips to meet first this need. And then that, this need, and then that need, and then this appetite, and then that appetite, this whim, and that fancy. Life lurches from one partial satisfaction to another, interrupted by ditches of disappointment. 
Motion is fueled by the successive illusions that purchasing this wardrobe, driving that car, eating this meal, drinking that beverage will recenter my life and give it coherence. Do you hear in what Eugene Peterson was saying there that all of our false worship is really we're after another hub because we think it can recenter our life and make it work again. We think it will bring coherence and harmony and peace and rest. And your maker is telling you, whether you know him or not, he is speaking to you the same tonight. And he's saying, those hubs, if you put the center anywhere else, the wheel doesn't turn. Life doesn't happen. Joy will never come. Hope will never come. I am the hub. And I made you to revolve around me and worship me. Look to me. Worship recenters you. Worship calls you away from all of these other things that we worship and that we run off of, trying to recenter and balance our lives. Worship calls us away from those things and back to one person. Worship is consuming. You can't have two hubs. I don't know if this is going to make me seem more hip in your eyes or make me seem like a dad because I have no concept of whether this is a song y'all listen to or not. But you know the song, Everything Comes Back to You? It came on today while I was writing this. So I was like, well... He writes about a girl, and I know that it's wrong that I can't move on, but there's something about you. If the whole world was watching, I'd still dance with you, drive highways and byways to be there with you. Over and over, the only truth, everything comes back to you. When you see the living God as He is, everything comes back to Him. When you know Him, when you see Him the way the Bible describes Him, when He opens your eyes, every spoke of your life, no matter it's your job or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or what happened to you in your past or what you're worried about in the future, every spoke comes back to the hub and it centers you and it brings coherence and it brings balance again. If you don't have a hub, it's not that you'll worship some other God, it's that you'll worship every other God, every other spoke. The final thing is this, and this is our application. Worship sings to God. Worship is a conversation. What we just did and what we're about to do again is dialogical, which means it's a dialogue. It is our response to what God has already done for you, whether you're aware of that or not. All of these angels, all of these elders, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea are singing back because of what God has made and what He is remaking. It is a conversation. We are never the first ones to speak, never the first ones to talk, never the first ones to sing. All we are only ever doing is simply responding back to what He has done. And we are joining our voice with the rest of creation. Worship is a chorus. Did you pick up on that? Your voice is this tiny drop in the ocean of worship that's happening 24-7. It's not something you do at RUF or you do at church. When we sing, we sing about the Lamb who was slain and what He has done for you and for me. We sing about His worthiness and we sing about our own inability and unworthiness, right? Because that's essential to worship. So whatever song we're singing, what is it? House of God Forever. You're going to notice this stuff. We don't pick a song to sing at RUF that doesn't fit that criteria. Because if it doesn't fit that criteria, it's not worship. 
Look to this God and you will find your life recentered. All the spokes will find a home in Him. And you will stop lurching in spasms from God to God, from worship to worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you to do all of these things. You have to for us. So I will remind you humbly of the prayer we asked you earlier. And I mean it. And I need it. And I want it. And they need it. And they want it. Would you make us see you? Because when we do, we will sing and we will worship. We ask this for your sake and your joy and our sake and our joy. Amen.